Good morning. <laughs> wow, I wasn't expecting such an emphatic warm welcome. That's great. That's a really good sign. So uh, thank you, Keith, for that introduction. And it's a real privilege for me to be able to share today again. Um, I did want to start just by acknowledging that I'm not a scholar. Okay, so I, I did try my best to do some research in preparation for this message. But I, I'm coming to you as someone who's wanting to learn alongside. Um, and so I'm speaking just as much to myself as I am to any of you. <clears throat> um, as Keith often mentions, please make yourself comfortable. There's coffee and tea at the back. I won't be offended if you're uh, need a, needing a refill. There's washrooms out those doors to the left. So I'd like to start today by sharing a little um, story of uh, when I was working at a summer camp at a church uh, a, a different church than this. And I was in high school and I was helping to coordinate this camp of about 150 kids and 100 volunteers. And it's halfway through the camp, so it's one, uh, at the end of the first of two weeks. And the youth pastor at the time comes up to me and says, Vincent, do you have a moment? Yes, of course I do. So then he says, okay, come into my office. I sit down. So... I have something I wanted to run by you. And the other pastor and I were, were having chatting, and we, we think we may notice something we want to see if, if you think um, is, is true. Do you think that maybe you're being a little prideful in the way that you're interacting with other people? So I thought it was a very interesting question. And, and, and probably in my head I thought, I've got to be one of the most humble people I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you know what, I really appreciate you bringing this up to me, um, but I don't think I am. And then I, and then I think I, you know, there was nothing else to talk about, so then I left. <laughs> and um, in, in all fairness, I did spend the next uh, little bit thinking about it and came to realize I was being kind of prideful, probably very prideful in the way that I was interacting with others. Um, but it just, I think back to that and I think, wow, pride is such a sneaky thing. Uh, it's really easy to spot in other people and not always easy to spot in ourselves. At least that's my experience. Um, and, and so here's an example of some questions, if this clicker is going to work. Otherwise, I'll just... Uh, hmm, I might uh, just cue the slides then. Thank you. Of some questions that I think I could have asked myself to be a bit more self-reflective about where my heart is at. So... Um, I'm going to go through a few, few questions like that, that I've brainstormed since then. Question number one, am I critical of those who are really proud? Some of you may know what I'm talking about. Like there's someone that walks in the room and you just think, man, they are so arrogant and full of themselves. That really bugs me. But let's think about that a bit. What is it that's bugging me about that? Okay, it's probably something to do with I feel like this person just feels the need to impose their sense of superiority, their sense of worth. Okay, why does that bug me? Well, it bugs me because I feel the need to push back against anyone who pushes against my sense of worth, which is probably the very thing that that person's doing when they're being prideful and arrogant. So the more prideful we are, the more it's going to bug us when we see other people that are proud. Uh, let me put this a different way. Let's imagine a scenario, which is not true, where I was completely secure in my sense of worth. And someone proud walks in the room, head high, 
how do I respond? Hi. Right? Like, there's nothing threatening if I'm secure. The only reason it bugs me that they're so proud is because I'm not so secure in my sense of, of, of worth. Let's go on to the next question. Am I appalled at other people's flaws? Is there something about someone else that just really bugs me? Well, if so, it probably means that I think I'm above that. Let's go on to the next one. Am I willing to give up power? This is probably what was at play a little bit during that camp where I thought I knew how things should run, I had a co-coordinator, we would talk things through, and, and that was it. Um, but when we, have, when we have a hard time giving up power, for example, with decision making, I think what that tells us is we have this inner notion that things need to be my way. My way is gonna be the best way for this to happen. And so I can't let that go. Sometimes our way really is the better way. But when we have a hard time letting go of it, that indicates to us there's something going on in our hearts. And let's go on to one more. Oh, if I don't get recognition from others, is that okay? Hmm. I was thinking even sometimes like preparing for the sermon. Sometimes, I mean, this is, uh, I wasn't planning to share this, but I will now that I've started. Uh, it's really hard to sometimes to get feedback because I want to take full credit uh, which is great when it goes well and, and, and not as good in my favor when it doesn't. But, um, but, but there's this sense of like, oh, I want to feel recognized for the things that I do. Um, and that's not healthy. And I think there's one more question. Yes. Am I okay if I'm not better at, um, than things that other people? Pride is in its nature competitive, according to C.S. Lewis. And um, it's not just about being good at something. It's about needing to be better than other people. It's about needing to be richer than others, or cleverer than others, or smarter than others, which I guess is similar to clever. Am I okay if I'm not better than other people? These are some questions that I definitely could have asked myself and still need to continue to ask myself. Um, and I think pride can sometimes seem a little innocent, but the Bible actually has a lot to say about pride. And that's where I'd like to take us today. Uh, and we're going to look through Genesis 1 to 3, uh, starting at the beginning. Where did pride come into play? Whenever we start uh, talking about Genesis, I think just a quick caveat, which is Genesis was not intended as a scientific text. Probably that, that category of um, literature wasn't even created at that time. So the idea of coming to the text and thinking, okay, how was the world created? If we think that Genesis tells the story of meticulous detail around um, describing the physical world like a scientific textbook would. We're approaching it with a modern mindset and not the mindset of the original writer and reader, likely. Um, so uh, I won't get into that whole side of things today for that reason. Um, but a little bit of of context around, so what, what were the ideas circulating at that time? And there were a number of creation stories, uh, and depending on what time period we're looking at, uh, one possible common narrative would have been these uh, mythologies, like with Babylon and Egypt being these main superpowers. So I'm just gonna briefly outline an example of one of the Babylon, Babylonian mythologies around the creation story, just to give us some context for what, what was circulating at the time. So 
In short, it's basically a series of these different gods, uh, some of whom are dragon-like creatures who are competing for power. And one of them, particularly powerful, gets other gods to rally behind him. They slay this dragon-like goddess, split open bloody, and then there's the heavens and the earth split. And then there's another god who rebels against them, so they knock that god down, blood is um, poured out, and then out of that comes humans. Okay, so that's the context. And then we get to Genesis 2, sorry, 1 and 2, which tells this story that looks completely different. There's some similarities, but some key distinctions. It starts off with only one god. There's one unrivaled creator who is before time and matter and everything else that we know. And there, there's um, some sense of chaos. There's this term in Hebrew that I can't pronounce, which I think it's translated as dark and formless, which implies a level of chaos. But unlike the Babylonian gods who are part of that messiness, God is able to put controls and boundaries around it. And you see in Genesis 1, this, as one commentator puts it, like a meticulous writing where the order and structure is really key, as if to say God is a God of harmony, he is not controlled by chaos. He is in control. He has uh, power, but he also has peace. We also see that humans are created by gods, but not as a result of their power struggle. We see that God creates, you know, from day one to, uh, uh, to, to five, all these different elements, and it's good. There's like this image, like when you walk out and look into Lake Superior or you're in the bush and it's just peaceful and nice and things are orderly. And out of that, God says, I'm going to create humans in my image. It's an intentional choice, not this byproduct of some, some clashing, but an intentional decision to bring something to life, to make it very good. And we see that God rests, but not because he's tired. It's not like, oh, I skied the sleeping giant Lopet, which is a ski race, and oh my goodness, I just got to fall down and stop. Which we do see some of the other Babylonian gods get tired. Um, it's more like that the word in Hebrew is like to seize, like a car coming to rest, that kind of rest, where God puts a brake on it. Why? Why does God choose to rest if he doesn't need to? This is speculation, but we get this idea that God creates this, this um, world that is so good. He creates these beings that are good. And then it's like he's saying, I'm going to stop and just be with this and just enjoy it. And then he institutes that day of rest to say, this is important to me to just be with nature, to be with, with my creation, for creation to be able to enjoy all of this. And then we see in Genesis 2, which expands on um, the story of creating humans, where he creates this Garden of Eden. Many of us are familiar with this. And in the center of the garden, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we enter into chapter 3. So I'm going to read this, and um, the slides will also show, show the text. <clears throat> I'm going to read the whole chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat. Sorry, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the men, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I have commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will roll over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were taken. For dust you are, you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all living things. Oh, sorry, of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to the pardon me, to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so it's a bit of a loaded passage, and there's a lot to, that we could dig into, um, but I'm going to focus on a few specific points today. It starts off, and we see that there's this serpent, um, which as an aside, the ancient readers likely would have would realized that, that these images uh, represented something deeper. And, 
And the serpent has this lie, uh, lie. So I think on the next slide, we see that the serpent says, you surely will not die. So what's happened here? Right before that, the serpent says, did God really say this? Uh, thankfully, they actually remember what God said. So they said, no, no, but God said, God didn't say we can't eat from any tree in the garden. He said you can eat from any tree, just not this one. So the serpent switches from lying about what God said to lying about God's intentions. So he says, oh, okay, is that what God said? Well, you know, the reason is because for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's so tempting about this? It's interesting because he says you will be like God. But you may recall that humankind was already made in God's image. Um, I'm not sure exactly the details of what that means, but I'm thinking if, I, if I'm an artist and I'm writing a rendet, uh, uh, an image, or if I want to create a picture of myself on 2D form, it's going to be limited. But I'm going to do the best to represent something that I want reflected about myself in that picture. And you see this idea of God creates things that's good, and then he creates humans to care for each other, to care for nature, to be creative in the garden. And, and so they're already reflecting God. They're, kind, they're like God. But yeah, there's this temptation. And then as I was reading this text, I also thought, well, what's so tempting about knowing good and evil? Like, okay, they're in this garden, things are good. Why do they want to know good? And, like, what's so good about that? I don't really get it. But I think, as I was chatting with Keith about this, he pointed out that one of the, the reasons that this may be tempting, uh, a key to understanding that is what we mean by knowing. Now, in our modern day, we think of knowing like, I know all these facts. It's something in my head that I have an awareness of. But at that time, the idea of knowing is like to intimately experience something, to really know something at its core. So when we read it with that lens, we start to see that the serpent is saying, you see, God doesn't want you to um, eat from this tree because you already know goodness, but do you really know evil? There's an experience you're missing out on that God knows about. Don't you want to be powerful like God and to experience as much as you can? Don't let God be more powerful than you, you want to be like God. That's what God's afraid of. The serpent turns it into a power struggle, and that's the temptation. We see then that both Adam and Eve make the decision to eat from the fruit. And what follows is uh, they, they realize they're naked, they feel the need to hide, and then God comes and says, and says where are you? Why does God ask where they are? Like, is he, like, in the garden, like, hello, where are you? Like, I can't, I don't know where you are. Probably not. Um, it's, it's likely to, to, to help them think about, where am I? I'm hiding. Why? Why do I feel the need to hide now? And we see that the, the, the core kind of sin um, has something to do with this power struggle. It has something to do with pride. And if we think about it this way, if the temptation was to be um, like God in the sense of power, 
the moment we strive for power, we can start to feel threatened if we lose that power. The moment we feel the need to be better than everything else, we can be worried about not being enough. And we start to see that play out in some ways, and it also ties to shame as they hide. And God is bringing an awareness to this situation. And then what does God do? God curses the serpent, even curses the land, but he does not curse the woman and the men. What he does outline is he says, I created this world with a blessing to be good, but these core elements of life, connection with the land, family relationships, those are going to be tainted now. Remember, their temptation that they chose to rebel against God for was to experience good and evil. And God is outlining for them, in these things that were meant to be good, it will now be filled with hardship. So, then what does he do after this? He clothes them. He makes them garments. They are feeling shame, and they feel they need to hide. And God doesn't um, further their shame. He actually wants to cover their shame. And then he, he you know, bars the, the tr- them from the tree of life. And why is that? Well, probably because the tree of, if they had eaten from the tree of life in this current state, they would have been in this eternal kind of suffering that they've, they, that they've uh, chosen. And so it's actually an act of grace. And I think that this can challenge some of our preconceptions about how God responds to sin. I think sometimes we think, okay, we do something bad, and, and God's response is, shame on you, and I'm going to punish you. What we see here is that God says, okay, you've done something that's hurtful. You've rebelled against me. There are consequences. But I want to cover your shame, and I want to limit your suffering. We also learn something about the nature of sin. I think some of us grew up with different ideas around what sin is. And sometimes in the Bible, you see this descriptor like you're shooting for a target and you miss the target. And that's the word that's used for sin. But we also see a descriptor like in Genesis where sin is not just doing something bad. Sin is a condition, uh, like an infection, that spreads through humankind where we have a propensity, we have a desire to want to be powerful and to be above others. And that's why Christian tradition teaches us that pride is at the core of sin. Sin isn't just doing something wrong. It's it's something a bit more sinister and deeper in us. C.S. Lewis, a British uh, academic and writer, um, he defines pride as pride is, sorry, it's the next slide, is the pleasure of being above the rest. Pride is the pleasure of being above the rest. It's in its nature competitive. It's not just enough for things to be good and very good. I have to be the best. And when we hunger after that and when we are engulfed in that, that becomes pride. I also want to note here that sometimes when we think about God's response to pride, we think You know what? It's because God is prideful. He feels threatened. Um, And I'd like to posit that that that's not the real reason that God is concerned about our pride. It's not because he's worried that um, we're going to rival him as the creator of all things. It's because um, if we think about God's nature, which we get clues of in the creation story and elsewhere in the Bible, 
God is goodness in and of himself who, who wants to give and share that goodness. Like that day of rest where he pauses and just says, let's enjoy this. But pride gets in the way of that. And I think the reason um, that God is so upset about our pride is because he sees the way that it hurts us and he sees the way that it hurts our relationship with the very one who is the source of love. I mean, I think many of us can think about situations in our life, relationships or work situations, and pretty much most stressful situations. I think we can think through and pinpoint, oh, you know, pride plays into that. Pride plays into these arguments that I just had. Pride plays into this frustrating decision that management has made. Pride plays into the way people are bullied. And God sees that, and he's concerned. But I, I won't go into the details of how this works, other than to say that God, the image is like God is like a surgeon who says, I'm going to do some deep work that's not going to be easy and at times painful, but I want to root this pride out of you. And Jesus is a key part of that plan. And I think Keith is going to preach more about that. Um, but it gives us hope that, that we can let go of our pride. If we're willing to acknowledge the places where we're prideful and let go of it, that can actually draw us deeper into God's love. Let me give some few examples of how I think it might look if we were able to do that. Can we go to the next slide, please? Oh, yeah, that's our desire to to be touched by God. Oh, sorry, never mind. I guess this wasn't in the slides. We can go back a slide. I will just read them. Can we be flexible when other people aren't flexible? I think if we're able to let go of our pride, even when things don't work the way we want, it's okay. Um, Some of you may know this about me, but I really like to cook. And one of the downsides about that well, it's not about the enjoyment of cooking, but it's about the way I approach it, is sometimes I'm very particular about the way I think I like things to be cooked. And if I'm in my kitchen and I think, okay, you're going to brown this thing first before you put it in the stew, or, okay, this works better if you bake it at this temperature. And when I cook with other people, I really sometimes struggle when I see things done differently, and I think, oh, that's not how I want it to be done. But if I can let go of that, if I can let go of that sense of, my way is really the best way, (laughs) then I can be more flexible with just letting things be. And it's probably better for me and other people. Another way in which I think um, how this would look is if we could be at peace with taking time to rest. I am really bad at um, stopping and just doing nothing. And when I reflect on myself, I think that part of why that is is because I think, what's going to happen if I stop? I have this idea that like, things are going to be terrible if I don't keep doing all of these things. Now, occasionally, I think that's legitimate. There are responsibilities we have, and we need to meet them. Um, but can we be at peace with making a habit of pausing and resting and realizing, oh, God is actually the one who's going to hold this world together? Here's another one. It would look like other people talking and us being genuinely interested. I feel like that one's kind of self-explanatory. When I'm less, sometimes people are talking and I'm thinking, okay, what do I want to say? What does this mean about me? Uh, But if I can just 
put that aside, let go of that feeling of needing to be needing to be valued above other people, needing to be right more than other people, then I can just really listen. Another way I think this plays in is we can start to feel secure. I think if we can let go of our pride and not rely on our sense of needing to assert being above the rest, and we can just trust that because God has made us intentionally out of a place of love, that's enough. Then we can feel secure about who we are. Uh, someone once told me there's two kinds of people. And you, one kind, when someone walks in the room, they say, or sorry, when they walk into a room, they say, here I am. And another type of person walks into a room and says, there you are. When we let go of our pride, we can start to turn our attention to other people and nourish those relationships. And we can feel secure in who we are. So we're not worried about needing to, to, um, to, to, to assert our sense of value. And I'd like to just point out, like, I, I don't want this to be about um, us. It's not just about us feeling good about ourselves. I think that there is a bigger narrative here that, that the Genesis story teaches us about this God who has created us, and yet we have a tendency in all of us, a strong tendency, which is this idea of this infection of sin that makes us want to resist God because if God is above us then, and we want to be above everything, then we're going to resist God's love. Um, but I'd like to paint one more picture through an example of someone that I know uh, who, for me, he would be the first to admit he's not perfect, but for me, highlights a lot of these qualities. Um, he doesn't live in the city. He lives in a different city. And his name is Bobby. And Bobby is someone I met while volunteering at a soup kitchen in, uh, in the city. We were. And uh, I got to know him over a few years. And he's one of those people, I like... He, he came in the kitchen, I was doing dishes, and he just wanted to chat. And I had this sense that he just really genuinely wanted to get to know me. Like, he was just really, truly interested. Um, and as we were chatting, we got to know each other, and, so, and he knows that I'm a hugger. So every time he sees me, no matter what, he'll like, Vincent, and like, give me a big hug. And as I got to know him, I realized he has quite the story. He is someone who... Um, has experienced some uh, abandonment in his family, people abandoning him. Uh, he was involved with types, different types of addictions. His, this is all public because he's recorded and shared it publicly, by the way. So um, he's, his mom turned him into the RCMP when he was 16, feeling drugs. Anyways, in his 40s, comes to, to realize that there's this God and Jesus who, who loves him and, and wipes away his shame. And life is totally transformed. He started thinking, well, okay, how can I start sharing this and serving other people? So he has a truck. And he thought, okay, I'll just give people rides when they need rides. And he'll go into these crack houses and just share, like, hey, I've, I've been in situations like this, and it's not good. Uh, and just talk with people. He'll find local store owners who are struggling and just volunteer his time in the store to help them out and get to know them. He is one of those people who he was doing all of this, and some local businessman said, oh, man, like, Bobby's doing a lot. Maybe we should support him a bit like, to do this. So they, they got together and funded him to do this full time. So he lives on what he calls a missionary wage, 12 grand a year. Um, and, like, really, day-by-day -day dependence on God. 
And he'll be the first to admit that he does need to be really disciplined and intentional about taking time to rest. But I remember asking him one time, and I said, like, don't you get tired? And he said, okay, rest is really important. And when I don't rest, I do get tired. But it is, there is nothing better than being part of what God is doing. I thought, wow. The, the opposite of pride is being, sometimes you think the opposite of pride is humility. Like, I'm one of the most humble people I know. How could I possibly be prideful? I'm thinking about my 16-year-old self in that example I gave earlier. But, but that's not what it is. Uh, the opposite of pride is this humility that's not so concerned about myself at all. And I can just look towards the interest of others. And I can receive love from God and therefore share it with others feeling secure. And I think that that's what God wants for us. And that's why God is so eager to rid us of um, this nature that we have to look towards our own interests. If we can acknowledge and let go of our pride, we could be drawn deeper into the life that God wants for us. I'd like to close with a psalm uh, in Psalm 19. And this is on the slides. Um, and I'll just read it out. You can listen or you can read along, whatever you like. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you made us and you said that it is good. That you knit us in our mother's womb and you desire to have, um, to, for us to be able to enjoy that. God, would you search our hearts? Would you help us to see the ways in which we, um, we resist you? Would you help us to take some kind of action this week, whether that's just being willing to acknowledge that there's times that we're prideful. Or maybe it's starting in the places where we feel insecure and then respond to that insecurity and pride. God, whatever we need to do this week, would you, would you show us? Is it to, to just talk to you about it? Is it to journal about it? Is it to speak to someone about it? I don't know, God, but Lord, we, we just come to you saying, uh, acknowledging that you are the one for, through whom and for whom all things were made. Um, and we want to connect with you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now have a time of communion. And communion is a time where we remember God's heart of giving himself for us. And the bread represents his body broken through Jesus. Uh, the wine, his blood shed for us. And all are welcome.